going to read John chapter 9, the whole chapter. As he went along, he saw a man born blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes, and he told me to go to the Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and then I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God, for he does not even keep the Sabbath. But others asked, well, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. Still, they did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one who was born blind? How is it now that he can see? Well, we know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can now see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided to throw out anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah and put him out of the synagogue. This is why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was born blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've already told you and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you too want to become his disciples? <laughs> then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to godly persons who will do his will. Nobody's ever heard of the opening of eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. 
Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What do you want me to do for you? Those are words that come from the mouth of Jesus again and again over the pages of Scripture. In John's Gospel, they're the first words on the page, the first red letters that you'll find in the whole of the Bible. The first line spoken by the Messiah comes to two disciples of John the Baptist that are walking behind him. One of them is Andrew, the older brother of Peter. What do you want, Jesus asks them. The, the first disciples go on the adventure of their lives in response to a question, a question aimed at their desire. And that simple question keeps on showing up. It reappears on the lips of Jesus as the story moves forward. In John 5, he says it in another form. What do you want? Uh, a man paralyzed for 38 years is invited to stand up and walk in response to a question, a question probing desire. Jesus poses the most pointed version of this personal question to a blind man named Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? What do you desire? How would you answer it? Are you able to articulate your deep desire to God? Are you even allowed? Historically, desire was viewed as one of the primary or maybe the primary ways that God speaks to us. St. Ignatius, for instance, developed an entire theology and eventually a monastic order known today as the Jesuit tradition simply by the exploration of his own desire and the discovery that all of it pointed to God. He sat with the what do you want me to do for you question long enough and his answer went on to shape church history. Uh, More recently, though, particularly within church traditions in North America, we tend to identify desire with sin only and not also with our redemption. Ruth Haley Barton writes, in religious circles, we're much more accustomed to silencing our desire, distancing ourselves from it because we're suspicious and afraid of its power. Ronald Rollheiser, on the other hand, defines spirituality as ultimately about what we do with our desire. And his take, and I would argue the take from the bulk of church history in the pages of scripture, is not to undiscerningly gratify our every desire, as culture often coaches us to do, nor is it to suppress every desire, as certain streams of recent church history have coached us to do, but it is to trace our desire to its root, to discover that it points to God, and then to seek him as the gratifier of our desires. The missionary Frank Laubach, he says that desire is actually the great difference between Jesus and Buddha. The Buddhist teaching is uh, to abolish all desire in order to transcend it. The Jesus teaching is to fix the full weight of your desire on the only one who can satisfy it, God. You'll find a theology of desire among ancient monastics like Eckhart, but also modern evangelical writers like uh, Philip Sheldrake and Kurt Thompson. Most famously, C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What do you want me to do for you? That's the question I'm hoping you'll hear Jesus ask you today, and it's the question I'm believing that you'll have an answer to, praying and hoping that you'll be able to have a deeply personal, wildly vulnerable, brutally honest answer by Resurrection Sunday. And today, we start that journey. To get the full picture, though, everything that is behind this what-do-you-want question from Jesus we will go to John chapter nine. Now this is a story that we spent some time in recently and it's one we're returning to today. And I want you to know that this is not a story that's meant to be gulped down. It's a story that's meant to be chewed on and digested. And so my hope is that God will be speaking to you today, but that what he's speaking to you today will be for today and for many days to come as you continue to chew on what the Spirit reveals to you through this teaching. And I just gotta say, that was probably the best teaching text reading I've ever heard, Gerald. I mean, that was a long, long text, and you had just the right amount of emphasis. You know, not too much. Just the right amount. And all I could think about was what you were thinking about while you were reading. Because you know, when you're publicly reading, there's all kinds of thoughts going through your mind, like don't skip the next line. And I was thinking, man, this guy's had like seven minutes of thoughts up there and we'll never know them. (laughs) That being said, I want to break down the text Gerald just read while thinking about other things for us in four major chapters. Who sinned? Healing is disruptive. Healing is slow and the healing after the healing. What do you want me to do for you? That's where we're headed. Who sinned? That's where we've gotta start. And that brings us to chapter one. So start reading, right along with me. Keep your Bible open to John nine. We're gonna return to it again and again. I'm gonna start again in verse one. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Once a a really close friend of mine decided that it would be beneficial for him to begin seeing a therapist. Now that's a a part of my story. I found therapy and counseling really beneficial in my life. And I know it's a part of many of yours as well. But the the first time you see your first therapist, it can be really intimidating, like a, a daunting door to walk through. And so he asked if I, his pastor, would mind accompanying him. And this counselor didn't mind if this uh, new patient felt uh, most comfortable if their pastor sat next to them during the intake appointment. So that's how I end up sitting next to my friend, a highly successful graduate degree, educated young adult professional living in New York City at his first counseling appointment. And now if you've ever been to counseling, you'll know that you always go in with a presenting issue, right? There's some issue you have that's bringing you in. And for him, it was that he was emotionally unavailable but didn't know why. He uh, was just a couple of years into marriage and, and he discovered that he got angry quite easily, but he, he hadn't cried in over 20 years by his recollection. His wife pointed this out to him and said, there might be something there. You might want to investigate that. And so he comes in with that presenting issue. But of course, if you've ever been to counseling, you'll know that the presenting issue is never why you're really there. And what the counselor does is just kind of poke around in your history until they hit something that's a pressure point and unravels you in their office. 
And so we're sitting there uh, and I'm just praying quietly under my breath and listening as this therapist is asking questions. This goes on for more than an hour. We're already over our allotted time and then there's this one question that's asked in the office that accesses a memory. My friend begins to recount this story of when he was 11 or 12 years old and he came home from school one day and somehow accidentally he came across pornography for the first time in his life. And he didn't go on some sort of deep dive, but he did linger for just a little bit. And his father, who was very strict and a bit militant, walked into the room during that moment and said, what are you doing? What are you doing? And in that moment, when he's telling the story, my friend doesn't cry, he wails. He falls out of his chair onto his knees on the floor in this therapist's office, wailing loudly, recounting this moment. And in the days and weeks that followed, he discovered that his entire life, his emotional availability, his major decisions like school, vocation, where he would live, etc., his way of relating to others and his view of himself, all of it was a response to the shame that plunged into his moment that afternoon as an 11-year-old. It was pain that never quite healed, and so it told a story, a story that defined him and a story that he was living within. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? See, there's a lot behind that question. At this time in Jewish history, it was thought by some, not by all, but certainly by some, that to be born with a disability was a sign of a curse from God. A divine curse this severe would only be given to someone with an egregious secret sin that God was punishing. That was the horribly misguided but somewhat common logic. So a disability like blindness would often also include being excluded from the temple and ostracized from the community. This man was an infant born with a disability and that meant that he, along with his mother and father, would be forever looked at with suspicion. Uh, who is God cursing? What are they hiding? Which one of you is compromising God's standard of covenant faithfulness? It meant that this man likely had been excluded from the holiday celebrations and the festive gatherings. It meant that he was publicly shamed, seen as lesser, maybe even feared as a contaminant. It meant that he almost certainly was an embarrassment to his mother and father, an unfortunate blemish that they would prefer to dissociate from. It meant that the family that was meant to nurture him, the friends who were meant to companion him, the village that was meant to raise him, and the church that was meant to guide him, all of it became a source of pain not safety. Do you know what that feels like? Like when the mom or dad who are supposed to care for you and tell you that it's gonna be okay, who are supposed to laugh with you and tuck you in at night and coach you in Little League, when those very people disassociate from you instead? Do you know what it feels like when the friends that are supposed to companion you hurt you instead? That stunning discovery of what was said about you by someone you trusted when you weren't around to defend yourself or what you were excluded from or what they took from you, the way that they hurt you and the way that only someone you really let in has the power to hurt you. Or do you know what it feels like when the place you grow up, uh, the hometown that you were always meant to love returning to becomes not an emblem of nostalgia but a graveyard of past pain? Or do you know what it's like when the church small group or pastor, or priest, when the people of God disappoint you or hurt you in such a profound way that it's hard for you to enter a building like this one without getting short of breath. 
Rabbi, who sinned? It's a loaded question. Let's keep reading. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus, responding to a question from his disciples, says, this man was born blind that the works of God might be displayed in him. So here's what Jesus definitely doesn't mean by that. He definitely doesn't mean that God willed this man's disability. Sickness, suffering, and death were not a part of God's original design in Eden, nor are they part of God's ultimate redemption in the Garden City. They are consequences of the fall, when a lie leading to a deception led to a rebellion. Sickness, suffering, and death all break God's heart, and he has gone to unimaginable lengths to make a way through them. So no, Jesus is not saying that God willed this man's suffering so that he could perform some great sign in middle age. What Jesus is saying and what we are challenged to believe is that God is so good that he redeems our trauma. That God is so good that the trauma we carry is not a hole that's dug deep in us that one day he will cover over with dirt as if it never happened. It's a hole dug deep into us by an imposter where he pours his love deepest into us. See, we love moving quotes about wounded healers. but we secretly find it hard to believe that my place of deepest pain really could become my place of greatest encounter. I'm talking to you about your childhood abuse, about your medical diagnosis, about your negligent parents, about the night you try to forget from college and about the parental mistake you made, the one no one knows about but occasionally replays in your mind before you fall asleep. I'm talking to you about your child's suicidal ideation that you have no power to stop. I'm talking to you about your mom's OCD and your dad's insistence on trying to live his unrequited dreams from you or through you about the time that your dad shoved your mom and you did not have the courage to step in and do anything about it and about the addiction that you can't break. I'm talking to you about the intimacy that you don't have, the friendship you don't have, the child you don't have, the community you don't have, and it haunts you all the time. I'm talking to you about your trauma. That's the psychological term for it at least, so I hope you don't mind if I just briefly repeat myself from a month or so ago to make sure that we're all on the same page when we use a word like that one. Trauma is a later 17th century word of Greek origin that literally means wound. Now our modern English dictionaries define it a disordered psychic or behavioral state resulting from severe mental or emotional stress or physical injury. The uh, author and therapist Risma Menachem defines trauma as a wordless story our body tells itself about what is safe and what is a threat. Now putting all three of those together, Rich Velotas, the author and pastor, defines trauma the state of woundedness and the story that arises from living in that state. So trauma is not just being wounded, it's a story that arises from living wounded. Because our pain, our physical, mental, and emotional pain, pain that we have a responsibility in and pain that we are just innocently victimized by, it causes us to compensate. 
right? If you hurt your leg, you walk with a limp. Your body is compensating for the pain. If, if you're hurt emotionally, you withdraw. You become smaller. You, you kind of try to disappear for a minute because your body or your mind, your emotions are compensating for the pain. If you get a migraine, you lay down on the couch and you close your eyes. Your body is compensating for the pain. But then eventually that leg heals and you stop limping. Or that comment that pricked your insecurity kind of fades from your memory and you feel at home again in your own skin. Or the migraine that you had goes away and you get up off the couch, but some pain becomes chronic. Right, the injury that causes you to limp goes untreated and so you limp for the rest of your life. Now that pain is telling a story through your life. Or your dad's reaction to walking in on you when you were 11 bury shame somewhere so deep in your gut that you can't always recall the memory, but you're always living from the pain of the memory. It's pain that you live from, that's trauma. It's a wound that doesn't heal, and so it tells a story through my life. And trauma is not a comparison scale, right? Pain is pain. And when we live from pain, dramatic, unthinkable pain, and subtle, ordinary, easy to dismiss pain, when we live from pain, it's called trauma. We love to talk about wounded healers. And at the same time, we struggle to believe that God does his deepest work in my deepest pain. Because when pain is kept general, it sounds like poetry, but when pain gets personal, as personal as my trauma, as personal as the pain that hurts so bad I'm angry at you and questioning if you're being pastorally irresponsible for even bringing it up in a context like this one, when pain gets that personal, we struggle to believe that Jesus really is who he says he is. Let's pick up from there, John chapter nine, verse six. So after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. So Jesus enters into this man's deepest pain with his deepest healing. Where the imposter has dug deepest, Jesus pours his love deepest. The very parts of this man's story that he wanted to hide away from, run away from, and edit out of, of his past if he could, now become the parts of this man's story that he'll never stop telling. Because when a wound becomes a scar, we don't mind showing it, right? When a wound is no longer bleeding and hurting, but it's a, star that, or a scar that tells a story of healing, not one of current pain, then it's fine to bring it out into the open. And all of that being true, and it absolutely is true, it's hard to tell the story of this man's healing without acknowledging the indisputable fact that of all the healings Jesus ever worked, this is by far the weirdest method. Right? He spits in the dirt, makes two eye patches of mud, and puts them on this guy's eyes. What is up with that? I don't think it's as random as it might seem at first. Remember page one of the story? Creation as God intended it, Eden. Well, on page one, God creates everything simply by his breath, right? Let there be light, and there's light. Let uh, the waters come into the earth and separate from the dry ground, so dry ground appears, and then there's land and sea, and, and let there be vegetation on the dry land, and then there's wild ferns and magnolia trees, and rose bushes begin to sprout up. And it keeps on going like this the whole way through creation, with this one exception, when God makes people. 
So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So man and woman are set apart as the only aspect of God's creation that bear his image. And God made us by a different method than he made everything else. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. So how did God make people in his image? Well, he scooped up some dirt in his hands, put his breath on it, and then it became life and life to the full, his image in the world. And how did Jesus recreate this man in God's image? He scooped up some dirt from the ground and put his breath on it, and then recreated this man in God's image. This isn't a wild method, it's God's oldest trick. He is combining his breath with the dust of the earth to bring about life and life to the full in the world. That's the healing of Jesus. It is to open your eyes to the Imago Dei that he planted within you first to untangle the lie and reverse the deception and bring his image back to the surface of your life again. And when we imagine the healing of Jesus, that's usually where the story ends, right? A life that was defined by consequences of the lie is now redefined by the glory of God. That story is good news, and that's a true story, but it also skips over a few key chapters in the journey of redemption. Chapter two, healing is disruptive. I mean, maybe the most crucial observation that we make from John chapter nine is this, that healing did not fix this man's life, nor did it even necessarily improve this man's life. I mean, healing improved his sight for sure, and healing also gave him a whole new set of issues to deal with. Now he has issues with community, issues with authority, and issues with family. Right, first community. I mean, his neighbors immediately question him. Because the people who'd gotten used to seeing him a certain way and defining him a certain way suddenly have that whole paradigm turned on its head. And skepticism comes way more naturally than wonder does in moments like those. How do you know that you were healed? Who healed you? How did he do it exactly? Where is he now? I love the details the Bible includes sometimes, right? Like, some thought he was just a guy that looked like the guy, right? How many identical twin blind men were there in this village? When Jesus does something in the life of somebody else that breaches my paradigms, that disrupts my view of reality and possibility, it tends to be threatening before it's thrilling. And that's because healing then becomes both a celebration and a disruption in the life of the healed person. Because the rest of the onlookers, myself included, we get used to things a certain way and even if we don't like them that way, we understand and accept them that way and that holds up our illusion of some sense of control. And then when the way things are becomes the way things aren't necessarily, I tend to be threatened by that. Hence the questioning, the skepticism and the reticence to wonder. Secondly, he gets these problems with authority. Like if the neighbors question this man, I mean the priests, they just launch a full scale investigation. He's finally welcomed into the temple that he was very likely excluded from, but he's not welcome there to be restored to God and community, he's welcome there to be questioned. Because to celebrate this man's healing would be uh, to admit that the priests, or that God had drawn nearest to the very one that they had ostracized. And that is a tough pill that gets stuck right in the throats of the priests that are questioning him. Uh, Another people group, another setting, but it's the same story. Healing is a disruption. It is a threat more than a thrill. 
And then there's this guy's family. Years ago, I watched this mini-series called The Night Of. And I'm not a huge fan of, of TV shows because if a TV show's any good, then the writers just try to keep that show going as long as they possibly can for you to keep watching it. And that bothers me. So I'm, I got a weakness for a mini-series because I know someone had an end in mind when they started this thing. And I personally think spoilers are just fine when it's 2016 that you're referring to. If you have an issue with that, plug your ears for the next few minutes. But you've had a long time to consume this media if you really wanted to. And I also, just before I go any further, I should say this, I can't in good conscience recommend this show because I can only really remember one scene from it which I'm about to talk to you about. I don't remember anything else that happened, so let the record show that the pastor did not recommend the show, okay? So, The Night Of is a crime show, but it's not like the whodunit kind of crime show. It's about this clean-cut, really shy kid who then accidentally, through a series of very unlikely events, ends up at a crime scene one night. He's arrested and taken in as a suspect, and then he pretty quickly becomes the prime suspect, and then he is being held at Rikers Island as he awaits his trial date. It's a show about crime, but it's not so much about the crime as it is the effects the process have on the one labeled criminal. It's about prison and what it did to him over time. It's about living under this label criminal surrounded by people who carry the same label. It's a show about identity and about identifying with your pain until you have so lost the plot of your own story you don't know who you are or what you've done and not done. So then when the, file, or the trial finally comes, he's uh, called to the witness stand at his own trial and he's sitting there and the prosecutor asks him directly, did you do it? And the very question, he's finally given a chance to say publicly what he's been saying privately in every episode of the show and as he's sitting there in the defining moment, he says, I don't know. And it's this devastating line. It's devastating because regardless of guilt or innocence, what we're being shown is that he has lost himself somewhere along the way. And that is how I feel when I read the words of this blind man's parents to the priests who are conducting the investigation. Devastated. Let's pick up in verse 20. We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. You see, given the opportunity to defend their son, to restore their son, to celebrate their son, this man's mother and father didn't do any of that. They gripped onto their own social status instead. Fearing the exclusion, they had watched their son live under his whole life. They chose their social belonging over their son's familial belonging. It is a devastating line. Just like Nas, the main character from that show, from the witness stand of his own trial. See, healing is disruptive because their son's trauma was also their trauma. Like the trauma of being suspected of wrong that wounded your child in some permanent way. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And the trauma of being embarrassed by the one that you're biologically predisposed to, to feel proud of. 
of trying to avoid the face or hide the face of the one that you are biologically made to want to show wallet size photos of to strangers. The trauma of socially distancing yourself from your own son until you pass by him quietly, walking up the temple steps to the very building that he might have not been allowed in, seeing him not able to see you in the moment of your own betrayal. His healing means that this family's got work to do. And their son's eyes being opened doesn't fix any of that work. Fixing all of that requires painful confessions and humble apologies and restorative conversations and time. So much time. I can see! I can see! It's a jaw-dropping miracle. And it's a heart-stopping disruption, both at the same time. Healing is not a fix. It's a disruption. And intuitively, we know that. It's why some of us are reticent to do the work, right? to join God in the work of his own redemption in the deepest places within me. It's why I find myself hesitant to go on that silent retreat, hesitant to make that phone call, hesitant to return to that counselor's office, because we live with some level of fear of our own healing because I'm used to the version of me that I live with, the types of desires that I defer, and the coping mechanisms that make life bearable for me. And if I let all of that out, if I give Jesus access to all of me, there might be healing, but there will be disruption too. And it's not the disruption that I'm used to. So sometimes it feels safer to just stick with what I'm used to. That is what's behind Jesus' question to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? His question to Andrew, what do you want? And it's, what behind, it's, what, sorry, it's what's behind his question to that invalid at the pool who had been paralyzed for 38 years when he said, do you want to get well? In other words, are you ready to leap? Because I am here to heal you and it'll be amazing and it will be disruptive. And it was both. Healing at the deepest level is the fullest kind of life and healing at the deepest level is a new set of disruptions. It was on the pages of scripture and it is in our lives today. Healing is disruptive. But chapter three, I mean, healing is also slow. Jesus says something right at the beginning of the story, something that we kind of just glossed over that we need to return to now. It's in verse four. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. The works of him who sent me, the works of the Father. What are those works? We've already covered that, right? It's at the beginning of the story. It's the work of creation. And then we see Jesus using the same methods to go about recreation in this man's body. But recreation, the Father's work that Jesus is going about while there's light to do it, it's about our body, but it's also deeper than our body. It's about our body and our mind and our soul. And so when Jesus opens up this blind man's eyes, he's not done. He's just getting started. I mean, Jesus is a miracle worker, and the Bible is a record of God's activity or the activity of creator with his creation that insists on miracles. And, and the healing that we receive deepest, though, it's the slowest kind. Right? Jesus heals this man's body. He opens his eyes in a matter of minutes. That's a miracle. But his soul, 
all the big and small ways that he's internalized the pain that was let in through his blind eyes, that's a lifetime journey that he's walking and it starts today. See, there's no quick fix to the pain that has become a part of us and the trauma that we live from. I once heard the psychologist Kurt Thompson point out that uh, all that God makes in this world that is most undeniably beautiful also takes the longest time to create. Right, we had a big snowstorm this past week and snowflakes are gorgeous. They're undeniably beautiful and they're gone in a heartbeat, right? All that has to happen is the temperature rise a little bit or I step on it and it's just gone. But the Grand Canyon, Mount Hood, Joshua Tree, that's beauty that took thousands of years to create. And it's durable beauty. It's beauty that can't be taken by seasonal change or a thousand footprints. It's beauty that was here before me and will outlast me. It is beauty that generation after generation are meant to gaze at and wonder at the creator who was relentlessly patient in creating the most beautiful things, who's also relentlessly patient at doing the most beautiful thing in me. And that's true for nature, but it's also true for us, for people made from that dust and a little bit of his breath, right? A new crush comes really, really fast and goes really, really fast, but a marriage, that's slow. That's a long work and it's durable beauty. Or having kids, I mean, that can happen pretty fast, right? One night of passion and a few months later, there's a life. But grandchildren? Like the work of loving that person into adulthood, of loving them well enough that they want to know you as an adult, and they want to bring their kids to your house for the holidays, and they want to take pictures next to you and have you bear an influence on their child the way you bore an influence on them, that's beautiful, and it's durably beautiful, and it takes a lifetime. Or a new friendship. I mean, you can hit it off with someone and grab a cup of coffee and laugh at the same things and discover you've got common interests this afternoon. But church, like the sort of community that lasts through disagreement and dysfunction, that sees the worst parts of you and still chooses to be around you, and that knows not just your interests and your sense of humor, but also your fears, desires, struggles, gifts, guilts, and failures. Church, my friends, takes time. But there's durability to that family. There's such durability to the beauty of that family. It lasts not only in this age, but into the age to come. Do you guys see what I'm talking about? Durable beauty. And the same creator that makes the most beautiful things slowly out of the dust also makes the most beautiful things slowly within you. Will you let him? I say this, first of all, to assure some of you that if you're seeking healing and it's taking a long time, like if the trauma that's telling a story through your life seems stubborn and like it sticks around no matter how many times you tell it, it's uninvited, and the image of God that, that you're trying to invite in and it seems tardy no matter how many times it's invited, if, if you're doing prayer and community and counseling or some combination of all of the above and they don't seem to be working fast enough, it's not because you're doing something wrong. It's because healing is slow and durable beauty takes time and God is a patient artist when it comes to his masterpieces. 
And I also say this because I wanna ask you a question that Jesus asked to an invalid who had been used to living from a certain kind of pain for 38 years. And then he came up to that man and he said, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Or do you just wanna stop feeling pain? Because those are different. Do you wanna know the fullest, freest kind of life? Or do you wanna mask the symptoms and avoid the disruption of that kind of healing? Maybe the best way to phrase what I'm trying to get at is this. Are you willing to bear to believe that God has not forgotten the first two pages of the Bible? That he remembers who he knit you together to be in your mother's womb. And that he is so committed to that person that he will never stop working with you until he's recreated that kind of beauty within you. And that one day that you will know that kind of life with him and his other children forever. And that that is where the story's going, whether you partner with him in it or not. But if you do partner with him and are willing to bear through some disruption, you can even know some of that story right now. And it can make life this side of eternity more than bearable, but abundant. Are you willing to believe that this God does his deepest healing in my deepest pain. See, healing's an extraordinary miracle, but it's also a long, slow disruption. And that's why Jesus didn't skip town after the whole mud and spit trick. He hung around for chapter four, the healing after the healing. John chapter nine, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, let's stop there for a second, That's what makes the disruptive, slow healing of Jesus worth it, is that in the midst of the disruption that his healing throws us into, he will come and find you again. Every time. Philippians 1 says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Hebrews 12 calls Jesus the author and perfecter. That word can also be translated finisher. He's the completer of our faith. One chapter later we read, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Jesus is not going to leave you. He's coming after you and he is relentless. He's coming after me to do what? To restore my identity. Back to the text. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. See, Jesus, in no place does he promise escape from the disruption. All he promises is his presence within it. Healing acquainted this man with God's power, but disruption and patience and being found by Jesus in the mess that acquainted him with God's person. And we can survive, even thrive, amidst the disruptions of this life when we recognize the identity of the God who meets us in the mess. And when we recover God's identity, something crazy happens. We rediscover our own. (laughs) When we see God as he really is, this victorious healer whose commitment to me is so fierce that he is not only redeeming my pain, but he comes to find me in the disruptions that his redemption process throws me into. When we see God as he really is, we rediscover ourselves as we really are in his image. I've got three little boys, 
And most nights when I lay them down to sleep, I pray the exact same prayer over them. And it's not because it's become habit. It's because when I search my imagination for what I want to pray for them every night, it's a, I mean it again every single night. And it goes something like this. God, thank you so much that I get to be Hank's dad. I mean, you could have chosen anybody and you picked me to get to walk the little moments of his life, to get to be his dad. And here's the stunning discovery, if you will dare to believe it, that the voice of the Father over your life is, God, thank you so much that I get to be Pam's God. Thank you so much that I get to be Michael's God. What is that, man? Is that just some like millennial narcissism cloaked in spirituality? No. No, that's the voice of the Father over Jesus at his baptism. In the letter of Galatians, it says that when he sees you, he says just clothed in Christ's identity. The voice of the Father over your life is I cannot believe I get to walk every step with you day in and day out. Can you bear to believe this is who God is? And can you let it remake who you really are? See, when we gaze upon this God, then prayers start coming out of us that sound like Psalm 27. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. And if I could just like insert one prayer into your mouth for the next 40 days, that would be it. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. We are not used to dwelling anywhere these days. I don't know if you know, but the average estimate now is that for Americans, you will work 40 different jobs before you retire or die, whichever comes first. You got an iPhone, career mobility, social media profiles, all these things are training you to be a distracted wanderer. And that is a problem for our souls. Because Jesus says, remain in me as I remain in you. And David prays that I may dwell, remain in God's presence every day that I live. See, healing is found deepest by those who learn to live, to really live in his presence at home and at work, when I'm parenting and when I'm relaxing, when I'm alone and when I'm surrounded, to live all of it with his loving gaze fixed on me. Gaze. On the beauty of the Lord. You know, to gaze is not to glance. To gaze is not to occasionally acknowledge. To gaze is not to go about my thing and every once in a while check that we're still in the room together. To gaze is to look intently, so intently that it's awkward. That kind of worked at that moment. <laughs> well done, whoever that was. I had a few more things to say on that point, but that honestly feels like it landed. I'm going to move on. <laughs> and seek him in his temple. See, the temple of the Lord, it's not an isolated place. It's a communal one. And the way Jesus comes and finds me again in my disruption, his primary and preferred method, it's through other people. See, because when we dwell in his house, we don't dwell alone. We're moving in with the father and all of his adopted children. 
So I just wonder, like, who are the three people within this church community that could tell me everything about you? Like, could tell me your favorite food in your hometown and the names of your children and your parents. And could also tell me the theme of the current season that you're in spiritually and the greatest fear that you're holding and the real deep desire that lives in you and the prayer that you've, they've started praying for you because you quit praying it because you prayed it so hard for so long it hurts to come out of your mouth. And so they've picked it up for you. Right? Who could tell me about the destructive patterns that you're still kind of wrestling down and the last time that you got swallowed up by them? And who could tell me about the last breakthrough when he really met you and the one that you're waiting on now? Who are the people that you've let in so far that they can come and find you like Jesus comes and finds you when you are in the collateral damage of this moment in your healing? And the only reason I ask you that is because Jesus said, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. He doesn't say I, he says we. And he's talking to his disciples. We do the works of the Father. He is enlisting us as the vessels for his healing. The healing that you and I need deepest, it cannot be experienced just between me and Jesus or even just between me, Jesus, and a licensed professional, though I'm all for both of those contexts. Uh, but the primary way God comes to find us and meet us deepest is through the community of faith that we journey with. And this, my friends, has been one long introduction. God and the whole person, soul, mind, and body in his image. That is what we've titled the teaching series and practice that will carry us through the six weeks of Lent. So this Lenten season, we want to probe the depths of the redemption that Jesus won for us in his wilderness resistance and his sacrificial death. And it is a redemption of the whole person, soul, mind, and body. So I've gotten us started today with the soul. And we'll be joined by a guest teacher, Jared Boyd, next week, who's going to pick up on the theme of shame right where I'm leaving us here today. Uh, then will come mind. Like, what does it mean that my neurobiology and cognitive processing were made in God's image? How was my mind then distorted, and how is it redeemed? Like, what is it exactly is James talking about when he says that part of my spiritual inheritance is a sound mind? What about Romans 12, the renewal of the mind? What is that? How does that work for chronic anxiety and depression? And what does it mean for diagnosed mental illness? But then also, what does it just mean for everyday worry? And so for the two middle Sundays during Lent, we're gonna be joined by our old friend and founding pastor, John Mark Comer, who's gonna be teaching to us on the mind. And then comes the body. Right, what is the Genesis story of the human body? Why did God come in the body, live in a body, and then rise in a body? And what is the redemption of our bodies that Romans 8 is talking about? And what does all that mean for physical ailments and sexuality and gender and ethnicity and death? I'll be back to tackle that as we get nearer toward Easter. That's where we're going. But it all starts and ends with desire. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus seems to do his deepest healing through questions. Have you ever noticed that the resurrected Jesus shows up and then he goes around asking pointed questions at the perfect time targeting the deepest healing? First, it's Mary Magdalene right outside the tomb, right? Woman, 
Why are you crying? A question that targets her grief, that traces it to the root, and she discovers Jesus right there with her in the midst of her grief, and it leads to her deepest healing. And then he catches up with those two on the road to Emmaus, disappointed and disillusioned. What are you talking about together as you're walking along? It forces them to recount the promises of God that they had put their full weight on and then seen fall flat. And to recount them there in the midst of their disappointment only to discover that God is there resurrected in the midst of their disappointment. That the promises are closer and more true than they ever knew. A question leading to their deepest healing. And then of course there's Peter on that beach when he's off fishing. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? A question asked three times, targeting his own deep failure a few days before when he denied Jesus in the decisive moment. He drags all that to the surface so that he can say to him, in essence, you're still the rock that I want to build the church on. Jesus does his deepest healing in us through questions. And it's important that we acknowledge that because we tend to want a God who's predictable and offers us answers, right? We want a God that heals us with no disruptions and that heals us in a moment. But what we get is a God that refuses just to cake over those places of deep pain in our life like they never happen because our pain matters too much to him. And so instead, he asks us a question that allows him to get his love into those deepest places so they're not just covered over, but they're redeemed. What do you want me to do for you? What is your response? What is that deep place of healing? That Jesus is not saying, yeah, let's talk about your presenting issue but he's poking around until he gets you in that spot and says this, this is what I'm after. What do you want me to do for you? My prayer for you, my family, is that by Resurrection Sunday, that you'll be holding the deepest part of you in his resurrected presence, saying God, However disruptive it may be, and however slow you go, come right here and recreate out of this mess that lives in me.